0: The story in the book of Acts is the story that continues what Luke, the author of Acts, uh, began to tell back in his gospel, Luke. In Luke, Acts chapter 1, we read uh, Luke tying them together when he writes to the man that he was writing this to, Theophilus. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. The book of Acts is a continuation of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And the book of Acts is a continuation of that story from the point after Jesus died, rose, and ascended into heaven. Everything that takes place in Acts chapter 1 to 7 takes place in the same city, Jerusalem, where Jesus had died. We don't know exactly how much time has uh, gone past by the time that we get to Acts chapter 8. Uh, but we know that the church is established, that it is growing, and that people are becoming Christians in that city. But one of the things that is nagging over us, or nagging at our, our hearts the whole time in this story, is something that is said right at the beginning of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples, the apostles say, are you going to establish the kingdom now? Because Jesus has come preaching the kingdom. When's the kingdom going to be established? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or dates when the kingdom's going to be established, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Check. That happened in Acts chapter 2. But then he carries on and says, and you will be my witnesses at In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The problem by the time we get to Acts chapter 8 is that we're still in Jerusalem. So the question that has been tugging at us the whole way through the book is how is it that the gospel is going to spread? And the answer is that the gospel is going to spread by God sending out the gospel, it is God's gospel. And the means by which God chooses to send out the gospel is through messengers and through witnesses. And the means that he chooses to thrust the gospel out of Jerusalem is actually through persecution and death. One of his own, Stephen, had to die. And we're told that a great persecution broke out. On that day, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was there giving approval. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So remember the promise, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Jesus said, "You will be my witnesses in this place, and the means that God uses to thrust the, the disciples, uh, the followers of Jesus, out into the world is through persecution and through Stephen's death. They're to be witnesses of the facts uh, that Jesus taught and died. They're to be witnesses of the character of his holiness and his righteousness uh, of, of Jesus' own very life and all that he accomplished. They're called to be witnesses of the Christian faith. Their testimony isn't just a testimony of fact, but it's a testimony to lead not just Jews, but Gentiles, that is all people, to faith in Christ Jesus. And so that's what God does. You you, you have to recognize God's sovereign hand over all of history in accomplishing not just His purposes, but in fulfilling His promises that this gospel is a gospel for all people in all the world. Fulfilling His promise that He made to Abraham that through you and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now we might stop for just a moment and think to ourselves, but... Did Stephen really have to die? I mean, he was doing great work in the early church. Uh, Why did he have to uh, sacrifice his life for the gospel to go forwards? And although that isn't an easy question to answer, it testifies back to the sovereignty of God and those who choose to follow him. Back in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, we read these words. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead Freeing him from the agony of death Because it was impossible for death to hold him Later on in Acts chapter 5 We meet a man by the name of Gamaliel uh, And the, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin Who would later kill Stephen Are busy debating about what to do about these Jesus followers They weren't called Christians yet They were just these followers of Jesus And Gamaliel pipes up and says In this present case I advise you Leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. That is the context in which we have to read the stoning of Stephen and the spread of the gospel, at least in chapter 8, up to Samaria. Because subsequent to Stephen's death and persecution, Christians leave Jerusalem and the gospel goes out. What we need to recognize, though, at the beginning of this is that here is a sovereign God who is sovereign even over apparent tragedy. When God is at work, nothing can stop him. In the very worst things that we are facing, there is still a sovereign God and a gracious God. He is a God who is not only able to make the best of what is going on, but he's even able to use humans' evil intentions to accomplish his good purposes in history and to fulfill his long-standing promises. Friends, that ought to be great comfort for us in this life. That this is the sovereign God, not just that we serve, but that we know, who is able to take horrible situations like this, and further His kingdom, accomplish His purposes, and and, and fulfill His promises in our lives. It is a huge encouragement to us as Christians, that when we face hardship, difficulty, or persecution, God's hand is there in the midst of it, working perhaps behind the scenes in the midst of great tragedy to bring about our ultimate good. For we know that God works for the ultimate good, the salvific good of all who love him and all who call upon his name. So this is how the, the followers of Jesus became witnesses beyond Jerusalem and, and into Samaria. Uh, and then later we'll see in the book of Acts, right the way to the end of the world. Of course, the news in social media would have gone something like Christians being forced to flee because of danger to their lives. But the person of faith, the Christ follower, will look at the situation through the lens of the promise of faith and be able to say, God is keeping His promises. In His own mighty, sovereign way, He has arranged it. So, that is how the gospel began to spread beyond Jerusalem. But our passage this morning asks of us another question. Not just how the gospel spreads, but who is this gospel for? Who is this gospel for? And we'll meet a group of people... Uh, Two groups of people, in fact. Well, a group of people and then one person. uh, Who would be considered, at least by uh, Jewish people, to be completely unworthy of belonging to the people of God. So those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Big picture stuff. Smaller picture stuff, Philip. We meet Philip. Philip goes down to a city in Samaria. What you have to understand is that the, the story in, in Acts chapter 8 to 12 does, is, is fascinating because it brings together individuals, history, and geography. So this is the history of the spread of the gospel, this is the geography of the gospel going out, and this is the story of one man carrying the word of the gospel to other people. Uh, We we must be careful as we read the book of Acts because it's describing what took place. It's not prescribing how things will take place for all of time. It is a description. And at the same time as we read it, there are things that we can recognize in it because God still works in history. You are living in a particular time in history. God still works geographically. You are living in a particular place geographically. And God still works through people, through messengers, through Christians, you and I, who carry the gospel in history in Cape Town into the world and share it with other people. So Philip goes down to Samaria. We read that like we would read any other Bible story, not realizing that Samaria was a weighted word. Samaria was a group of people who had kind of been Jews. They were part of the northern kingdom that had split away. And then they sort of started intermarrying with uh, other uh, nations. And so they were kind of like a half-breed of Jews. They were on the fringe. They were kind of Jews, but they kind of weren't Jews. They didn't really like the Jews. The Jews didn't really like them. They only kind of believed part of the Bible, not the whole Bible. It was a mess. Uh, There was nothing pure about them, as it were, in terms of Judaism. And a Jew, uh, someone like Peter or John or Philip, uh, would have perhaps considered them unworthy to receive the gospel, or at least unworthy to be a part of God's people. But Philip went down to that city in Samaria, and he proclaimed Christ there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs that he did, all paid close attention to what he said. And with shrieks, evil spirits came out of many. Many paralytics and cripples were healed, and so there was great joy in that city. In other words, the the gospel is now being preached, and people are taking notice. Another person there also takes notice. His name is Simon, the sorcerer, and he had been practicing in the city for a long time, and he had a great following because of his power. Uh, He had somehow hoodwinked the crowds, he sees this popular things that's taking place, and he jumps on the bandwagon. He believes, verse 13, he's baptized, and then he follows Philip everywhere. The story then breaks in verse 14 for just a second, because we're the readers going, is this real? Is this really happening? Are these people really worthy of the gospel? And so... When the apostles in Jerusalem hear that the Samaritans had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them to see what it was that was taking place. Is this genuine? Is this for real? Is this legitimate? And the answer that we discover is that it is legitimate, but it's not Peter and John who legitimize the Samaritans as being able to belong to the new people of God. It's the Holy Spirit. So when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So that is uh, what takes place. That's what we see happening. And, And what's happening there is that God Himself, through the giving of the Holy Spirit, as Peter and John uh, come and pray for it, God Himself legitimizes them and says, these people who were considered outside of the people of God and unworthy of the people of God, are legitimately the people of God. Because just like those who had believed in Jerusalem received the Holy Spirit, so too did these Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. Again, it's describing what took place because what's happening is that geographic boundaries, that previously, previous geographic and and cultural boundaries that previously existed, are now being broken down. Later on, uh, Paul will write that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, for we are all one in Jesus Christ. This is important for Luke to communicate to his readers and for us to think carefully about what it is who it is that the gospel's for you see there's no one who is worthy of the gospel there is nowhere that Jesus messengers to go to find worthy people of the gospel you and i are equally as unworthy as the Samaritans were unworthy to receive the gospel, as even the Jews were unworthy to receive the gospel. After all, they're the ones who crucified Jesus. They were the hands, uh, theirs were the hands uh, that Jesus was handed into by God's set purpose. But what the gospel of grace comes to us and does is it says that even though you are unworthy, God declares that you are worthy. Uh, because the gospel isn't about your self worth. It's about God's promises and us trusting in them. I know that for uh, many of us in this church, we do have a, a self worth complex. We don't consider ourselves worthy of many things. It's why there's an entire billion, multi billion dollar book industry on self help and self worth and self actualization and self realization. It's a complex that we struggle with. But what we need to hear this morning from the message of the gospel is that, uh, from the message of Acts and the message of the Samaritans receiving the gospel, is that although all people are unworthy, God decides and determines that the gospel is for all people. God considered the Samaritans worthy. Later on, he would consider a eunuch worthy. He would consider Cornelius, a a Gentile, worthy to receive the gospel. Whether or not you're worthy to receive the gospel actually has nothing to do with what is inside of you, but God coming to you in His grace and inviting you to respond to the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You see, our our sin is what makes us unworthy. But God steps down into this world to make us worthy through Jesus Christ. So who's the gospel for? Well, it's for unworthy people. And if you jump over to Acts chapter 8 verse 26, we meet another person who would have very much been considered unworthy uh, on two counts. Firstly, he was an Ethiopian. He was uh, from Africa. Uh, He was a treasurer for a foreign queen, and he was a eunuch, which... I'm not going to explain, but you know, and if you don't know, you can find out afterwards. The, 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 the Bible actually tells us that uh, not only were foreigners excluded from the kingdom of God, but eunuchs and were excluded from the kingdom of God specifically. In Isaiah chapter 56, we read, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate from his people. And let not the eunuchs say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So we read in Deuteronomy 23 that no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of God. But the promise of God in Isaiah is that a day is coming when even the eunuch will be welcomed to be a part of the people of God. So Philip is directed by an angel to this Ethiopian eunuch. They're walking along the road. The spirit prompts him and says, go walk by that chariot. The eunuch had obviously bought a scroll while he was visiting Jerusalem because somehow he was a God-fearer. And what you did in those days is people didn't read quietly. They read out loud. So he's busy going along the road. You've got to use your imagination here, being pulled along. And Philip kind of rocks up next to this chariot and he hears the scroll being read aloud. He hears the eunuch reading, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who's the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Philip ran up and said, do you understand what you're talking about? Verse 30, and the eunuch says, I can't unless someone explains it to me. And then verse 34, tell me what it means. And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. God uses people who speak God's word. You see, that that's the thing that rings right the way through. Philip spoke the word of God. He spoke of Jesus, he spoke of the kingdom. Philip, again here, speaks the word of God from the Old Testament and explains from that very passage of Scripture, starting there, the good news about Jesus Christ. God uses his word as people read it and speak it and explain it to others to call people to become part of this kingdom. Samaritans and even a foreign Ethiopian eunuch, he gives them a name. An everlasting name that's better than sons or daughters. An everlasting name that shall never be cut off. And so we read that the eunuch said, why can't I be baptized? I think Philip probably spoke to him for a while about these things. And when he understood it all, he says, well, why can't I be baptized? And so he gives orders to stop the chariots, And they get out and Philip and the eunuch go down into the water and Philip baptizes him there. And then the eunuch goes on his way, and Philip, we're told, is taken off to somewhere else to continue uh, sharing the word, the message concerning salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. Friends, there's so much detail in these stories, and we could actually be here all day, but I think that we're, we're going to cover a lot of this as the weeks go by. And so really the, 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 the groundswell that I'm wanting to build for us this morning is is not just, is both the answer to the question of how did the gospel spread? Well, God accomplishes His purposes regardless of what people do because His promise would be fulfilled that all the nations of the earth would hear the gospel. But it also answers this question, Who who is the gospel for? That's the thing that I want you to know this morning clearly. That the gospel comes to you, an unworthy person. That the gospel is for you. There's another person that's brought into the mix. His name is uh, Simon the Sorcerer. And he goes through all the motions. Uh, You know, I suppose if if the encouragement of this passage this morning is that the gospel is even for you, it's even for me. The warning of this passage this morning is, is that we must be incredibly careful when we read the scriptures, when we think about our lives, when we examine our hearts, when we approach the Lord's table, when we call ourselves Christians. Because Philip went through all the motions, he believed, verse 13, he was baptized, and everywhere that Philip went, he also went. Then when the disciples, Peter and John, come from Jerusalem and they lay their hands on, his eyes go big and wide. He wants the things of God, but not God. He wants the power of God, but not a relationship with God. Verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given, he says to them, I'll give you money so that I can also do that because I want to be powerful. He attaches himself to a people group in order to try and find meaning and purpose and power. Peter's... Reply to him, I think, is the warning that we need to hear this morning. He says, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. Because you think that you could earn the gift of God, pay for it, achieve it somehow through your own self. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right with God. Philip went through all the motions, but his heart was not right with God. In verse 22, Peter carries on and says, Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin, or you are full of bitterness and you are enslaved by iniquity. Who can be saved? Who's the gospel for? Well, it's for anyone. But it's for anyone who has repented of their sins. It's for anyone whose heart is uh, right before God. Uh, The gospel is for anyone. But we have to be incredibly careful when we uh, consider or think about or um, try to soothe ourselves in terms of our belief You know, later on in the book of Acts, Paul will preach a sermon and and he'll say that um, from one man God made every nation of men that we should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God, God is not far from each one of us. And yet we can have God so close and never have a relationship with Him. In, in, the, in the book of James, uh, James talks about you, uh, you, you do all these things. You ask and, and you don't have. And, and you're wanting to spend these things on your own uh, pleasures and that you are double-minded. And, and that's the picture that you have here of Simon. A double-minded uh, person who wants the the power of God but doesn't want the relationship with God, Uh, who thinks that um, being a Christian is about the outward things and doing the right things and being in the right places and being friends with the right people and being able to show the right power at the right time, but doesn't understand that it's about a heart that is right before God. The Bible says... the Old Testament that sacrifice uh, and offering is not what God desires, but a broken and a contrite spirit, a heart that seeks Him. Jesus warns that on the last day, many will come saying, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name, we did that in your name. If you spend any time at Southern Cross, you know that that is the verse in the Bible that scares me the most. Many will come and say, Lord, Lord, we did this and we did that. And that's exactly what's happening here in Simon's situation. He said, Lord, Lord, and he did this and he did that, but his heart was wicked. His heart was full of bitterness. His heart was captive to sin. So who's the gospel for? Well, the gospel is for anyone and everyone, especially those who recognize that they are unworthy of it. But the gospel is only for those who will truly repent of their sins, who will truly uh, turn to God and trust in His promises, who will recognize, as Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt and have nothing to offer the Lord. But because of His not just great mercy, but His great riches that He freely bestows upon us, His grace comes to us. His grace picks us up. His grace saves us. His grace rescues us. That is who the gospel is for. And so we see this word spreading and spreading. It leaves Jerusalem. It goes past Judea. It gets out into Samaria. We know that this gospel is a gospel that wouldn't just stop there, but that it even comes to us. And we know from this passage that this gospel is a gospel that brings great joy. Look at chapter 8, verse 8. So there was great joy in that city. Or look at chapter 8 and verse 39. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again. Well, that's sad, isn't it? But look at the next phrase. But he went on his way rejoicing. Friends, I think that that's something that that we chase in this life. Joy and enjoyment. But we've got to be careful because joy and enjoyment is something that can be manufactured quite easily. True joy, real joy, is found bound to Jesus. And in that personal relationship with Him. In John chapter 16, verse 22, we read, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Friends, I wonder this morning, have you been filled with much joy because of your relationship with Jesus? Or are you in danger of your heart being uh, taken captive by the desires that war within you? Are you a uh, Christian this morning because you're hoping that maybe you'll get some of that power that God has and it'll kind of rub off on your life? Or are you a Christian this morning because of what God has done for you on the cross? You're not here as a self-serving, self-seeking Christian But you're here as a servant of the living God. Rejoicing in your salvation. Are you a a Christ follower this morning? Or have you put Jesus on a leash? In the hope that maybe some of that power will get transferred on you. And life will just be a little bit easier. The encouragement to us this morning. Is that though each of us is unworthy of the gospel. The gospel is for us. The warning this morning is that unless we check our hearts and examine them closely, we are in danger, just like Simon, of treating God like that and discovering, horrifically, that we actually have no part in the kingdom of God. So let me ask you this. Does your relationship with Jesus bring you joy and enjoyment and rejoicing and satisfaction. If it doesn't, can I plead with you to check carefully inside your hearts this morning because there is a strong possibility that if it doesn't, you're trying to serve him in your own power and for all the wrong reasons. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you that your grace has come to us. It has come to each one of us. We pray, Lord, that that grace would be abundant in our lives. We have confessed our sins, Lord, and we repent where we have fallen short. We repent where we have used and abused you. We turn back to you, Lord, and ask you to do a work in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that the gospel is a gospel for all people, Samaritans, eunuchs, and each one of us living here in Cape Town this morning. And we pray, Lord, that that gospel would come to us and do a work in our lives and do a work in our hearts, a work that will fill us with a joy, a joy that can never be taken away because it is bound up in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, I'm gonna ask you to join me at the back and we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper together.